But yeah, I had an idea here. I took some notes. Um, and so I wanted to concentrate on anti-racism because I know that's what uh, that you're focused on. And uh, I wanted to incorporate meditation as well as a way to uh, to kind of open ourselves up to the possibilities that uh, we may need to change or that other people have a, a different lived experience. Yeah. And um, so, again, I'm, I'm super excited to have you here. Uh, thanks again uh, sure. for being here. Um, so um, you were in medicine. And, and then, so tell me about that. Um, my medical years. Um, I, yeah, I was a hospitalist, which means that I trained in internal medicine. Um, I did that residency from 03 to 06 in Seattle and then moved to Chicago and started working, um, a hospital, a hospitalist is basically someone who takes care of hospitalized patients with issues like, you know, kidney failure, diabetes, cancer, heart attacks, HIV related stuff. COVID would be a huge thing now if I were still practicing. Okay. And then you transitioned, right? You said you were burnt out. Like what really led to you choosing a different path or taking some time off? Oh gosh. Okay. So many things. So in 2011, um, several things happened. Um, one thing looking back, you know, like I can, I can recognize it all looking back, but so I basically hit a a wall of burnout that was really severe in August, September of 2011, um, coinciding with the change in residency work hours, which put a lot of the work on the attendings, which is like the supervisors of the the residents. That's, that's what I was doing at the time. Um, but also leading up to that, I was dealing with a uh, malpractice lawsuit to the second of, um, the second of two, um, neither of which were anything I did wrong, but this is just the healthcare system that, that exists right now. So, um, dealing with the stress of that, um, and I went on a medical mission trip to Africa, which is something we can definitely talk about if you'd like to, um, I had these big dreams, probably being like Angelina Jolie, something ridiculous like that. But I wanted to go and like take care of AIDS patients in Africa, like repeatedly. I wanted to go back and like have an ongoing thing, but I was totally being white savior and all the like all the things you're not supposed to do. I was doing them. I didn't know at the time, and it was a total disaster. I mean, that we were in Zambia. They fed us well. We were extremely safe, but they like did not want us there. But we were brought there by this priest. So like in the um like the diocese hospital, and there were some issues with the priest and the nuns. He was having sex with some of them, and there was all this stuff that we didn't know about. He didn't give them our money, so they were just like, "Who are these people? Why are they here?" And I remember someone asking me like, "Why are you here for a week? Like, what do you think you're going to accomplish?" And I was like what do you mean? But they were totally right. Like they were spot on. What did we think we were going to accomplish other than like bringing our drug resistant bacteria to their country that didn't have that. So that's a whole other thing. Um, so I went on this trip, but it was very like ego crushing for me. It was very like, I failed at this thing that I thought I wanted to do because I've always had, I'd always had an interest in HIV medicine. Um, so, uh, anyway, so that plus, the burnout plus the lawsuits plus a couple friendships of mine kind of imploded with some good friends of mine. And I found myself staring at this horrible burnout. I was crying every day and just miserable. And I met someone who told me they meditated twice a day. And I was like, Hmm. 
tell me everything I want to know. And I, and I was always prior, like prior to that, totally, totally skeptical, non-spiritual, the most like straight and narrow, anxious type A doctor type you could imagine. So, um, for me to be like, yeah, tell me, tell me about this meditation. He said, well, my teacher's coming to speak in, in Chicago in a couple of days. Why don't you go hear him speak? So I went to go hear the teacher speak. And it was like, this man was speaking to my inner soul. Like he knew he talked about stress and how it affects our behavior and the way we feel like in a way that I didn't, even with all my fancy doctor knowledge, didn't know and didn't understand. And so I signed up to take the course. It was called Vedic meditation. Um, it was this huge leap of faith that I felt like it was totally, no one I knew meditated. Like that wasn't part of the, the discussion in my life, at least at that point. So I learned to meditate and, and that made a lot of things better. So that didn't directly in the burnout didn't directly influence me leaving medicine. Um, but the benefits of the meditation did. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess let's follow it like a progression. Okay, so it wasn't all at once. It just was little thing. It just it was becoming more and more burdensome and heavy. And then you just tripped. You went. You took this trip. You said it was ego crushing. And yeah. someone says, "Hey, there's meditation, and I do it twice a day." Yeah. And so, I guess it's so interesting to me sometimes how we have to hit rock bottom yeah. sometimes to 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 change or to want to change. Um, but also interesting how I think sometimes when these people come into our lives, right, where it causes like this quantum leap or the shift, um, that it's a, a product of a lot of that suffering and the stress and asking, you know, putting that energy out for, for us to be, you know, have the ship all right. Yeah. Um, and so tell me more about this meditation. I think it's like Vedic mm-hmm. meditation. Yeah. Like what are the components of that? Um, it, it just real quick. I mean, like I was decimated, you know, like, and I, I had to get to that point in order to be open to anything like meditation, because I was just, I was so Western, you know, like I was so not open. It was like something that other people did, you know, like, but it wasn't something that, that I would be able to do or, or benefit from. So, um, yeah, it was like the systematic destruction of me basically to get me to a point where I was desperate enough to be open. And then I always say that the meditation practice found me. I didn't find it because I didn't go Googling for meditation. I didn't like look for like burnout reduction stuff. Like it, I literally just was like, met this person very synchronistically, synchronicitous. I don't I, the word is very hard. Um, serendipitously. And um, yeah, so the, the technique, it's, it's the opposite of mindfulness. So it is not using any focus or concentration. Um, you use a Sanskrit mantra that you're given in this beautiful ceremony on the first day of the class. Um, that the, and you're taught the technique of how to use it in the course that allows your mind to kind of de-excite to this state of relaxation that's two to five times more restful than sleep. So you're, you're sitting comfortably with your back supported. You're not cross-legged. If you have an itch, you scratch it. And you're not focusing or controlling your brain in any way. You're not trying to control what your thoughts are doing or have preference for what your thoughts are doing or anything like that. So it's allows your brain to settle into this state of relaxation that starts to repair the damages of the stress damages that we've accumulated over a lifetime. And it's fast, like it works very fast and it's very easy. It's scandalously easy. Um, And it's like, why haven't I been doing this? 
my whole life. <laughs> like, mm. why, why did I have my head stuck so far up my backside that I would not have been open to this until now? Because it's like, I'm like, holy crap, it's real. You know, like if I'm doing it, then it's real. <laughs> it, there's no like, there's, there's no like um, fantasy about it. Like if I'm actually able to do it and benefit from it, then mm. it's legit because I had the experience. So I knew it was. I love that. You said deconstructing you a moment ago. Like, you know, all all the the suffering and and the stress, right, leads you to a point where, like, it's like an onion, you're peeling layers Mm -hmm. off of you. Um, And I guess it's the way that we always imagine that we we don't want, right? Uh, We we don't want uh, challenges, even though we know they make us stronger, right? You know, walking into the fire and adding wood to that pile sometimes, is the scariest thing on earth. And right. sometimes we're just thrown in there where we're not going to do it ourselves, right? We're not going to quit our jobs on our own. Like we have to lose it or we're not going to yeah. leave the relationship. They got to break with us, break up with us first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we come to this meditation and like, you're not really trying to stop any thoughts or anything like that, right? Because I want to, I want to tie this into anti-racism. Yeah. Right. Um, what I, want, what I imagine is I want to peel back the layers of racism or privilege um, or getting us to a point where, you know, similar to you, we're at the bottom. Now we can be open to other things. Now the right people can find us, right? You know, because we would have never found out on our own. I, I think that's the same for, for people who are trying to find equality or some level, some balance and understanding. Um, Let's do it this way. Tell me about growing up, right? Because for me, I grew up in a very multicultural kind of uh, neighborhoods my whole life. Uh, my parents were in the military uh, and, you know, from San Diego, California. And oftentimes in my, in my early, like before high school, we would be like the only black family in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I never, I went to a church in Philadelphia when I was, oh, maybe in middle school. Um, and it was my first time ever being around so many black people at one time. Mm. And uh, I don't really remember, remember my face, uh, but my parents are always like, you should have seen your face around all of your people. Oh. I was like, I had a face. And I didn't really know I had a color. It was kind of revealed to me. Yeah. Right. Even though I knew I had a color and that's, and that's what's so strange. And that's kind of what I want to get into. And I don't know, do you have any like parallels there where, or did you always just see people like from the other side of these people are here and they're them and we're us Um, because we had that uh, we're us side without realizing as children that we were, that we belong somewhere. I, yeah, I mean, I have a, a few, a few thoughts about that. Um, the first is like, I mean, I, I don't remember my aha moment that there were different races. Like, I feel like I kind of always knew that black people were different than me. This is all the stuff I'm saying is obviously my beliefs as a child. Um, mm-hmm. hopefully, obviously, um, we had in Atlanta, I, I grew up very, very sheltered. Um, very, very, um, uh, in suburban Atlanta. Um, my, my family's Jewish. We grew up like, I got, I grew up sheltered from non-Jewish people. Like 
most of my parents' friends were Jewish. And I always, like, I grew up thinking that all doctors were Jewish because like my dad is a doctor and like the the friends he made when he moved to Atlanta were the people who, because we're from Canada originally, that we moved here when I, to Atlanta when I was two months old. So like the people they became friends with were the people they met at my dad's medical office where everyone was just, you know, and it happened to be this community of, of, of several Jewish doctors mostly Jewish. And then, you know, you join a new city, you kind of join your, your church or your temple or, or whatever. And that is where you meet your new uh, acquaintances. So, but I had like, I mean, Atlanta is super, super at the time it was very segregated. I think now it's a lot better from, from my, my perspective, at least, um, which may not mean much in this context. Um, but you know, the only time you would see black people in my neighborhood would be if they were coming to clean houses. And and that would be like 98% true, I would say. And so we had black cleaning women that would come. And, um, I, I always don't, I don't ever want to like talk bad about my parents. I don't think they were any different from any other sheltered white people at the time. But I remember seeing a, a black man walking down a, a fairly busy street near me and my dad saying, what's he doing in our neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Um, he might not remember that. He might deny that. And I have a great relationship with my dad and they've been late to the, late to the, they're, they're starting the journey now. So I'm, 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 I've worked with them, but, and my mom, like, I remember hearing some bad things about black people, about how, when they answer the phone and how your your customer service experience is going to be like horrible stuff that I can remember being ingrained, not just from society, but like in my own home. Mm-hmm. Although they are like, we're from Canada. We didn't know. We didn't have any experience really with black people, but still it was somehow ingrained. So it's not like that was a commonplace thing in my household, but it was. So I kind of had this, this otherness ingrained, but at the same time I grew up Jewish and I went to a Christian school, a very elite Christian private school in Atlanta. Um, and I can, I can hide my religion anytime I want. So I know it is nowhere near the same struggle or anything that black people face, but, um, like to me, it felt very isolating and it felt very, um, I don't know. I just felt like, like I never belonged at my school. And, and interestingly, the plan was like this private, this private school and then go to public school in sixth grade. And when I went to public school in sixth grade, that's when they in inner city black kids. So to the, the suburban schools, um, high schools and middle schools. So that caused this whole like education white flight thing that I was aware of when it was happening. All the white, like wealthy parents wanted to then send their kids to private school if they could. It was this very weird thing. And I don't, it's never been talked about. Like I've never heard it talked about explicitly, but I'm very clear that that's what happened. And so I ended up going back to this private school after a year in public school. And, um, so for me, like religion was always this separate thing. And, and I went to, ended up going to a Jewish summer camp. And for me, that was probably my face. My, like everyone around me is Jewish. Like I don't have to worry about whether I fit in or whether I'm like going to be proselytized to and try to can be converted or asked to give my body to Jesus, like I can just like be who I am and like also do other things, you know, and like also play soccer and also go on hikes. So that's a long answer to your question, but hopefully it was helpful. Yeah, um, it, it is. And it's, it's so interesting to kind of um, piece this thing together. Like, cause I don't, I don't have a set plan on how, to, and I don't think anyone has that right on um, how do we do this? How do we fix this? How do we, um, 
get close, become closer together other than through telling our stories. Yeah. Uh, and so it's all, I think from a child's perspective to see these things and maybe not be able to articulate what's happening, but, but have it register. Um, and so do you, did you ever feel like you were missing out on something when you would see people of another race or another background? Did you ever feel like you were just missing out? Like, Oh, I want to be over there. Or was it more of just, here's where we are. This is what I know. I don't really know what I'm missing because I'm not really out there. I feel like for me, that's such a good question. And I've never really like dived into any of this, um, Mm -hmm. like out loud and certainly not recorded. And it's just interesting to like, think about it. When I went to public school, there were a, a ton of black students and I loved it. Like I wanted to be their friends. I was friends with a lot of them, but we weren't like friends, friends. We didn't socialize together. Our, our groups didn't mix, but like at school, I hung out with a lot of black kids and was friendly with them and had classes with them. And it was great, but it was like, it was like dabbling. You know what I mean? Like, like, because there were no, I don't think I ever brought a black child over to my house, but I was only in public school for a year. And there were like six black students at my school, at my private high school or a school that I went to for 12 years. So it, I didn't really have the opportunity. And there certainly weren't that many, if any at all in my Jewish community. So like, there was an interest and I, I was very drawn to socializing with other black people my age. Um, when I went back to my private high school, there were some black students and I was friends with them. But there's that thing when you're white, you don't, un- you don't understand why all the black kids are sitting together in the, in the cafeteria. Like you see it. And unless you're told otherwise, you're just like, well, they don't want to be friends with us. Sure. So I'm not going to bother because, you know, dot, dot, dot. And so not having any empathy, not really understanding what they would be going through. It was just kind of like, well, it's separate and that's how they want it. So I'm going to not push in. Okay. Um, so I, I feel like that I definitely saw. And, and the fact that there's a book, like why all the black kids sit together and I actually haven't read it yet, but like, I was like, Oh, that's a thing. That wasn't just my experience. That's like, yeah, that's a thing everywhere. Now, now I understand it much more to the extent that I'm capable of understanding it as a white person. But, um, and I think there's, from what I've under, understand, there's like a, Fetishism is a too strong of a word for me, but it's like thinking that the black people are cooler and wanting to like see what they're doing and learn from them and be part of their culture. Like I've always been attracted to that, but I've never like understood that it might be racist. Appropriation. I'm sorry. A cultural uh, appropriation. Yeah, totally, totally. And and like I did my med school training at, at um, Emory, and when I was at Grady, it was like this whole world opened up to me of like my little privileged suburban life, like being in this County hospital, taking care of patients from all walks of life and being able to like be with them. And like, yes, I was their medical student. So I had, there was a, there was a power differential, I guess, but like, hang, you know, like as a med student, you can spend time with your, your patients and them. And I went to so one of my, my um, patients was a, a local musician. So I went to one of his performances. And so like, I, I got to know my patients and I was like, I just fell, I fell in love with there being a different world outside of my own um, and, and wanting to understand that more. Okay. Huh. It's, it's kind of refreshing to have this conversation in, in a lot of ways. It really is. Um, 
because it's it's a difficult conversation. I think many people just are unwilling to have yeah. uh, because it can be awkward because it forces us to kind of put it out there. Uh, what might seem like unseemly to other people. Um, because <laughs> my unseemly is like, a, I, I, I see it as a model sure. for other people to be like, oh, I've had those same thoughts. I've been that person. I can relate to that. That's not acceptable. And like, I can, oh, she's saying she's done it. Like, cool. Then like, what else is, how else can I normalize it so that people can not normalize it, but you know what I mean? Like take the shame mm. out of it. And then have people be like, oh, okay. I don't have end. Like I was always this like perfect uh-huh. kind of color BS because it's not real. Right. And I interrupted you. So please continue. I'm sorry. No, no, that was, that was me interrupting you. It's, it's quite all right. Uh, I, I think, yeah. Um, normalizing it or because it, it's, it's unacceptable. We have to be so careful now how we say things, right? Because people are going to take it they're going to run with it. And you had good intentions behind it. You didn't know how to phrase it exactly. But that's not really the point these days, is it? It's just, it's out your mouth and it's too late, right? You can't take it back. And it's, it's a tweet now and somebody's got you. Uh, and these offenses, you can be fired for, right? You can lose your, your whole livelihood and so on and, and your reputation. Um, and that's why, and I, again, this is why it's so important. So again, I want to thank you for 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 having this talk. I, I remember being called the N-word in third grade. Mm. And, um, and I may have mentioned this before on a podcast or on something I've done before, but what was so interesting about it is that, that when it happened, I wasn't upset. I, I, I knew I should be upset. You know, like, oh, black people, when we hear this word, of course, we're going to be upset. You should be upset. And um, he actually called my sister this. Then he called me one. And then I, I beat him up off, off principle. You know, I was just like, oh, this, of course, this is for my people. And again, I'm like third grade. I'm like eight years old. And I feel like I have to take up the mantle for black people. Um, and then he goes home. And I kid you not, maybe five, ten minutes later, there's a knock at the door. I answered the door and it's his mother. And I didn't know it was his mother, but I, I figured it out like really quick. Um, opened the door. She's towering over me and she curses me out and calls me every racial epithet you can even think of. It's just, she's going off and I just start crying at the front door. And again, there's not many black families in this neighborhood and she's just going in and then my mom hears it. And then mama bear to the rescue. She's like, nope, we're not doing that. And certainly from her generation, she's seen that from an entirely different angle than, than, than me. Um, and I, and I, I think from that day forward, I started to put the pieces together that I was different. Mm-hmm. And that I would hear things like, he's like, all my teachers say, would say, he's so well-spoken. Or, you know, he speaks so well. Or he's different from the rest of them. And you're caught between two worlds because, you know, on one hand, it's like, a backhanded compliment, like I should feel good about this, maybe. Um, and and I started like I remember hearing my dad tell me like he had this uh, this Pontiac, like this Trans Am with the like with the bird on the on the hood, you know. And he's in the Navy and he's living out in San Diego. And 
he said he used to like, it was, it was a nice car, right? And he said he would leave the base, the naval base, and leave his uniform on because he would get pulled over all the time. And he had to wear the uniform in his mind because he would earn more respect or a little bit more consideration by having it on rather than not. Yeah. And before I knew, I put the pieces together that my mom would always say, both parents would say, you know, Nick, you have to work twice as hard to get half of what they get, right? Or you can never, you, you can never not give 100% ever because they're going to use any reason to exclude you. And um, it was a lot of pressure, right? And I think that's what sometimes people miss it where when we say it's systemic, um, that all of society kind of operates in a way of placing this pressure on your shoulders to live, to not do anything extraordinary, but just to do what every other person seems to be able to do without thought, you know? And so I would see kids misbehaving in school and jump in there. And my mom would like, you know, obviously they'd call home and, and, and get in trouble. And my mom would just yank me to the side and say, Nicholas, you're not white. You can't do that. And that was something me and my sister heard all the time. You're not white. And we would look at the Tiger Woods scandal later on and say, well, he learned he was black. OJ learned he was black. And it was always this level of, he, that I want to, this is the point I'm trying to get across. That, we have, that Some people are on a level where they have to learn who they are yeah. in society. Um, and so in the same way, I think some cultures or some neighborhoods and groups are in like this enclave of like, they're sheltered from it. They don't see it. They don't know about this other side. I think there's another side. Uh, there's a class of Black people who don't know about each other. But it doesn't exist for, that, for not really knowing the white world. You know, because we have, for survival reasons, we had to. You've got to know. I've, I've, like, I've got to know Ross and Rachel and everybody on Friends. I, got to, I have to know that so I can have those conversations right. over the but they don't have to watch in living color and living single and fresh prince to know my world. Right. And so I spent the rest of my days trying to learn black culture. And one could almost say I was appropriating my own culture because that's not what I was used to. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And so I think it's tricky now. How do you move forward? Yeah. You know, carrying all of that. And un- unpackaging that and then the denial and the self-hate. Or, and um, from a meditation standpoint, what do you think is maybe the, the proper step? Yeah. God, I have so many, so many thoughts about all the things. Sure. Um, so um, I think that the first step is recognizing that it's got its hooks in all of us. You know what I mean? Like, like none of us are immune. White people aren't immune. Black people aren't immune. Um, and that to me was super earth shattering when I learned that black people can be racist against themselves, like internalized because of everything you just said. Um, and, and, and they're pitted, you know, like, like African Americans versus like Caribbean black Americans versus, you know, African immigrants, like, like everyone has the, this like, ingrained need to be better than, at least I'm not like that group of people. And, and that's why white poor people, you know, like, it's just, as, as you know, all of this, but for anyone listening, you know, it's like pitting people against each other who should connect, right. Get the people out of power who are in power that are 
harming everybody, but it's like this difference to keep us apart and, and keep us uh, di- out of, I don't, I can't say us because right. I'm none of those marginalized communities, but to keep people from organizing and, and changing power. So, um, so for me, that was a huge aha moment as a white person to be like, Oh, that's just, that's just part of life in the U S is becoming privileged and clueless and, and, and the whiteness, you know, the, the white supremacy culture and all of us, not a KKK white supremacy that I always like pointed my finger at, but the whiteness that's in me and, and seeing race as whiteness as totally a thing about race, you know, like, like, I think it's easy for white people to be like, Oh, that's someone else's problem. And understanding that not as not only is it not someone else's problem, but I am the problem or I am at least a, one of many parts of the problem. And so I think the way the meditation plays in, there's a couple things. I think first it, the meditation that I now became a teacher, I didn't really go into that that much, but, um, I, I, I did great in my medical career. I, my burnout went away. I did great, but then I was like, I want something else. I want to, I want to become a teacher in this practice. So I didn't like leave medicine, but I went towards the, this meditation. And what I love about it is it kind of reprograms your brain's stress, habitual stress reaction, like pattern. So, um, if you think about like, um, like tire tracks in a snowstorm, you kind of automatically follow the car in front of you, even though you don't necessarily know why. And it's not always even conscious that you're doing it or like the, um, the out, the, the gutter in a, in a bowling alley, like one thing happens and you're kind of in your default stress mode, yeah. yelling, uh, eating too much, drinking too much, self-isolating, um, defensiveness, any of these things that, that is your defense, your default stress mode, you're reconfiguring paths in your brain around that. So, um, and, and, and changing the way your, your habitual form of your nervous system, which is typically in the like fight or flight stress mode, sympathetic nervous system, shifting that over to be more and more in the parasympathetic resting healing state so that you're not going through the world as that over there is other than me. I am different from that. I should be afraid of that. So there's that. I think that was, that was the first thing. Um, I think there's a, a hideous amount of spiritual bypassing in my meditation community and the whole, like, we are all one thing. Um, it's great for me. <laughs> it makes me feel better about the pain and suffering of the world as though we're all one thing, but it's not the reality of people who don't look like me. And so I'm realizing more and more now that a lot of the spiritual things that I connected with so much since I started meditating I didn't start meditating to become spiritual, but it just kind of happened. Um, a lot of that is, can be very problematic if taught in the wrong way. So you can very easily get a meditation practice and rewire your habitual stress response and still be the most privileged, clueless, um, white supremacy culture perpetuator as a, as a wellness person. So it's, it's, it's not enough to do the practice. It's then going into action and, and learning what the world actually looks like. Um, and in that way, that's how you discover the oneness, not by platitudes, but by actually like pulling the, the curtain away, um, of, of what whiteness has done to separate everyone. So, so I think that's, that's one thing. And then I think for me, it's helped me with my white fragility a lot. Like it helps me be more resilient. So if I get to a breaking point of some, like realizations about my whiteness and about racism, I'm going to pop back up and be like, 
all right, get it together, girl, like learn from it and move on. If I'm getting defensive, it, it helps me to recognize that I'm being defensive about something. Like the first time someone called me privilege was a, a friend of mine. I wrote a blog post after the 2016 election saying we're all going to be okay. And this is a white friend of mine who's a sociologist and we were frenemies. So like she sent me some kind of nasty message about it. And I was like, I'm not privileged. I'm not racist. Like I didn't know what privilege meant, but I was like, well, crap. <laughs> like, I don't like her. <laughs> our, our relationship is fraught, but if she's saying this, like maybe there's something to it and maybe I should learn about it. And I don't think I would have been able to do that had I not been able to see past myself on some level and, and willing to be wrong um, and willing to, to learn. So I think those are two things. Um, I'll pause if you have any, <laughs> I don't want to just like go on a monologue. No, no, no. I mean, Ooh, that's a, it's a lot, isn't it? It's so, it's, it's so complex. Yeah. It really is, right? And to even just to get into a state of awareness, you know, and then, like you said, then to go into action, right? Because, you know, anti-racism is, is an active process. Yeah. Um, and, and you've mentioned white fragility. Um, I don't even know where to go. Like, I'm, I'm still, hey, yay. Yeah. I almost want to move forward, but I feel like I can't at, at the, in terms of like ways to be active about it. What can we do uh, in, in a practical way? But I feel like I'm missing something before there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think the other thing for me that spirituality has helped with, um, as I said, the meditation that I practice and teach is not mindfulness. So it's, it's this like baseline, you practice it twice a day, but you don't meditate on things. You're not focusing on like any physical sensations or anything like that. So it teach you become more mindful as a result of it, but you're not, it's not a mindfulness practice, but what I have learned with my own experiences and with my racist studying I've done is that white people are very afraid of being uncomfortable in any way. Um, I think a lot of humans probably not, not just white people, but it's very white People get very, very, very like touchy and shady when it comes to race and they don't want anything to be like perceived in any sort of uncomfortable way or that they're doing anything wrong that makes them a bad person. And so I think the work of spiritual, the, the, the beauty of spiritual work is allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and just sit in that and be like, I'm defensive. I'm mad. I'm mad at this person. I want to tell them all the things that they're wrong about and that I'm right about. And I want to, you know, not see this stuff within myself, but, but being able to like be okay with being uncomfortable, I think is the last piece, not the last piece. It's, it's one of the bridging pieces of these spiritual practices. And, and what I teach, it, I don't call it Vedic meditation. I call it conscious health meditation, but it's not a great, like applicable in the moment tool for anti-racism. I don't think right. if it's not practiced chronically, like in addition, it on its own isn't enough because it doesn't, you, you, you don't sit and feel in your body when you're doing the practice, which is great. Cause it, you, you have to, you have to be able to like almost disassociate from your body and thoughts when you're, when you're doing the meditation. But when it comes to like real world uncomfortableness, you have to have other practices. Nothing is going to fix everything in your life. You have to have other practices that allow you to be just in the middle of a bunch of crap and being okay with it. Not just your fear, like when you're in the moment and being like, oh my God, that black person over there might steal my wallet. But like, 
the, 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 the othering that like that, that Republican over there is bad and I'm good. That, um, uh, anything we tell ourselves to avoid having to look inward and, and, and see our own flaws. So I think that's a huge component of it that, um, that's, that's the work I do is like helping white people find ways to get into their discomfort and make it productive rather than something that shuts them down. Okay. That helps me a bit. So I guess the, the resulting clarity yeah, and which would allow them to kind of sit in their, in, 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 in the muck and the mire, right. Is, is, I think the step I wanted to kind of see before, right. You're talking about bridging this gap was once you're there, it's almost like, how do we get into a place of taking like action steps? You know what I mean? Like, like the baby steps of, aha, Eureka, I, 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 I'm starting to see what's going on out here and that I could be part of the problem, even though I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I'm act, I don't actively do things, uh, again, to, to harm anyone or their livelihood or, you know, they're standing in society, but maybe I do. So what do I do now? Yeah. And I think that's something I hear a lot is, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. You're going to take a knee. Yeah, yeah. They're shooting people unarmed. All right. What do I do? You know, because uh, in, in response to this last one, with, with starting with like Ahmaud Arby and then Breonna Taylor and then, you know, George Floyd, I've seen a lot of responses on social media from friends that I've, I've never really seen anything from. I've seen them draw hard lines in, in the dirt and go, you know what? We can't be friends anymore. Mom, dad, uncle, aunt, cousin, whoever. Um, and that's great. And it's definitely a step forward. You know what I mean? To be public about it. Yeah. But I think, again, for, for a lot of black people and, and people of color in this country, it's like, I think America's very comfortable with going that far, only that far. Right. Yeah. As long as it doesn't threaten my comfort. Exactly. As long as it doesn't actually threaten my reality and my status quo, then like, I'll say all the things. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's, I think that's a big fear. And I think this was, I think people saw in the last election where, you know, people thought, oh, Donald Trump is saying all these things. There's no way he can win. There's no way he should have this percent of the vote, percent of the votes. And I called it. I told you, I said, no, 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 no. Because I understand where America, like right. most people kind of like, non-white people in America say, we know exactly what he's doing and exactly what's going to happen here. And regardless of whether he won the popular vote, you know, I think a lot of people thought, you know, which he didn't win the popular vote, right? But, but we, we, people thought it shouldn't even have been this close, you know, for him to get that many. And I said, no, America's pretty racist. And I think when it came to a certain point, I think a lot of it was like, I think it surprised a lot of white people. Like, oh, we really are. Oh, this is really is a thing. Mm-hmm. They not, not we, but they. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> the people that voted for him are the racist ones. That's what white. That's what I thought. You know. You know, and and it's so it's 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 uh it's a mind bender. I mean, because I want to be honest on this show, right? I I, I want to get more to that place because I feel myself holding back because. 
I don't want to say the wrong things. And somebody goes back and goes, hey, Nick, um, sir. You offend me. Uh, that I can like 99.8% guarantee. And if yeah. you do it on me, if I get offended. But if you're thinking about other, offending other people, then I can't help you there. Well, yeah, you know, I just got to work through it, right? I just got to. Yeah. Speaking as a black person, um, I think one of the hardest things about being black is the history of division and what's been done to to people of color, but particularly African Americans, to where there's a lot of self hate yeah. and colorism and. You know, people can look at vandalism. People can look at flexing, you know, materialism. You have to have all these different things. And then people can run that into being, you know, field Negro or in the house and so on. And why we, you know, the NAACP is like, why were they favored? Because they were light-skinned and why weren't they? And then all these divisions and, and, and integration, which a lot of Black people think was the worst thing to happen to um, African-Americans. You know, I, I know a lot of people uh, in the textbooks, it's always celebrated, right? You know, like, oh, you know, schools are segregated. Now look, we're all in this together, big step forward. But for most older black people I've talked to, they'll tell us it's the worst thing that ever happened. And if you read like uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, right? Uh, it was Alex Haley. In there, there's a point where Malcolm X says he wants to be a doctor. And uh, his white teacher is like, yeah, no. Yeah, you're smart and all, but let's be realistic. And when school's kind of integrated here, obviously it wasn't well-received. Like, like we're not going to act like it was. Yeah. But you had a lot of Black kids who were talented, had real genius, real charisma, and it was snuffed out. Yeah. Because now you, you have these teachers who don't understand your struggle and don't care to elevate you really in any way, right? Unless they're going to be a white saver and say, well, here's the talented 10% of you and we're going to use you for this, this, and this, and this, and this. So as to say, hey, we're not holding you down because look who made it. Oprah made it. Tyler Perry made it. I mean, you can make it, right? And we, right? <laughs> And I think the hardest part now is that I think Black people fought racism for so long that it's now merging into classism. It's just really about money these days. But it's compounded because it's both. Whereas I think poor whites and anybody else are feeling one thing and they're trying to you know, merge that and say, I can identify with you but they're not the same things. So to the black listeners, I want to say this. I grew up in a way where I was not accepted by black people, despite being black. And while I understand where that comes from and what happened with that, black people won't allow us to acknowledge that. Because there needs to be one enemy, right? Yeah. You know, because there's an African proverb that says, you know, if there's no enemy within, no one can do us any harm. And it's easy for us to go, eh, look at the white man's doing. 
holding this down. Look at Donald Trump and not going, hey, what are we doing? Right? And I don't, I don't know if, if white people understand what it's like to be black but not black. And then to go into black communities and be black but not black there too. Yeah. Right? Because some people don't, don't get that, right? And all the code switching that has to happen as a matter of survival. Um, you know, to, you, you go into the hood and, and somebody, you, you can, I, can, I can do that. I can, I, can, I can go there and, right, and be of that world. And I can go to the other side and blend in there without ever really blending in. I'll give you a perfect example of how well, like the spook who sat by the door, like black people who, who have made it in and not really been black. And I, and I want everybody to hear this. And certain people are going to listen to this and they might remember this if, if they know me and if they were there. I was, I was at work. Okay, this is a good one. I was at work. And somehow the topic got on dating and all, everyone in the room was white except for me. And so it's like three white women and then me. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting on this couch and it gets to the topic of dating. And then somebody says, you know, would you date outside of your race? I'm not really in the conversation, but I'm in the room and they know I'm there. They've been talking to me all this time. And some are like, yeah, of course. I would date on my race, da, 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 da. Somebody says, would you date a black person? And my ears kind of perk up. I'm like, but I'm staying out of it. And um, I think two out of the three were like, yeah. And they left it at just yes. And the third person said yes, but I could never marry one. And then she says, but in terms of the sex, and she goes into the stereotypes and fetishizing the skin and how beautiful the babies would be and all this other thing. And I'm there the entire time. And, I, and it dawns on me that they don't really think I'm black. They really must not. There's a line in the sand. There's this type of black that I don't like. And then there's Nick Landers. And he's my friend and I love him to death. I would go to war over him, but he's not that. And that, that almost, it's almost like a compliment because I can't tell you how many black people have ascended the ladders in corporate or anywhere else in the world where it gets whiter, it gets the higher you go, you know? And have done, have done that so well that they've lost their color in the process until there's war, right? And I think when, when white people, anybody else, anybody in this country sees anybody of any race, they have to realize that that person is carrying that entire thing with them. Yeah. You know, like some people see like it's a knee and a flag. And it's, it's got to be more than that. Or the NBA players who just took boycott a couple games. Or, you know, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you're shot in the back seven times. Or Tyler Rittenhouse walking past the cops and what the media says about that on the front of papers versus uh, Tamir Rice, who's 12. Same kid, right? They didn't ask questions. We saw the video, you know, they, they hopped out of the car. Didn't ask any questions, bam, bam. And if you go back and listen to the call, the person said, I think it's a fake gun. We're not really scared, but 
you know, some people are kind of worried about it. And they should have been still did that anyway. Right. And it, and, it, and, it, and it hurts more because there are black people who are trying to infiltrate the white world to have a decent life, right, outside of every other systemic thing. Fight their own people in the process. Try to become a leader for your own people in the process. And then fight another world where you have friends and enemies on this side, right? And I drive Uber sometimes. And this white guy gets in my car a few days ago and says, hey, man, I just want you to know we're not all bad. Okay. And I was like, it was like out of nowhere, I was like, okay. You know, and I could tell that he felt it, but he didn't know how to put it. And this is just indicative of the, that we, we, we're not having these conversations. We don't know how to talk to each other. And so do you have any insights on just how can we get to a place where we can put this stuff out here to clean it up because it's messy, right? Oh, that's a big question. And thank you. I mean, I'm like <laughs> used to doing my own podcast and I'm like, thank you for sharing your experiences. I mean, I hear every word you're saying and I think that's, that's the first thing is to listen uh, as white people, as anybody to listen to what someone else's experience is and not put your own assumptions on it. And, and knowing, I think what we need to dismantle is this thought that anything white, the thought and then the, the culture around it, that by being white, that that's somehow better. And that by not being like a white person, that means you're not okay. And, and some of the stuff I've learned from reading Ibram X. Kendi is like, he talks a lot about that, like, the in the um the seg- the um assimilationists who were like just trying to just black people come on let's be let's be better let's be more white and then we'll get the things and and it being okay to just be exactly who you are and if you're if you, if you have flaws it's because because you have flaws not because you're a a black person who has flaws or a latinx person who has flaws or someone else that you're just a flawed person and that's okay and it doesn't have to be attributed to your entire race so I think that like for me now, I'm starting to look out at the world, like what it's become. I mean, like a day-to-day life is lovely, but if you look at what this country has become, that's a result of whiteness and it's a complete cluster. And so like the, the notion that anyone's going to be like, why would you want to be like whiteness? That to me is crazy, even though it's indoctrinated in me as well. And so I think that might be a big part of it. Um, being willing to be super uncomfortable and, and, and be wrong, not pointing the finger outside, but doing, that's the thing is I think I've done this too. I still, I I don't know. I'm not like done with my anti-racist journey, but like we go out, like don't go out into the world and start posting stuff until you have done the internal work to like deal with your shit. Or at least feel like you have like done enough. Cause there's always going to be another layer to crack open and another layer to crack open. But I mean, I wrote a blog post last year about reconciling the, the Vedic spirituality worldview with, with anti-racism. And I was wrong as hell. Like I was wrong, but I thought I had like figured it out. And now looking back, I'm like, Oh dear God, what was I putting out there? But it was coming from a place where I had been reflecting and I had been reading and I had attended workshops and I had, done still a lot of work. So don't expect to like be trusted. You have to earn the trust as a white person. You have to earn the trust of black people. You don't, you don't get it just by being white. Like that's the, that's the privilege that we've enjoyed our whole lives. But like, that's where it ends is, is 
oh, well, I'm white and I'm down now. So therefore like, trust me and all these things. I think that, um, like be willing to be decimated over and over again inside and know that that's a good thing. Um, I think that's important and be willing to have your, your, your worldview shifted and know that you will get more out of life if you are not constantly pointing the finger elsewhere. It's actually a better place to be, even though it's painful, it's a better place to be. So I'm not like selling it that well, probably right now. Be willing to be decimated. All right, like, let's do it. But I feel like we have to stop and recognize that we created it. I read this amazing blog post this woman shared with me. Her name is Catherine Pugh, P-U-G-H. She's a lawyer. She doesn't do a lot of writing at all, but it's, there's no such thing as a white ally. And her whole premise is that like that whole concept, not just the word ally versus partner versus accomplice, but that whole concept is crap because white people created racism. So they're not allies in fixing it. Like it's not black people's problems to fix because they didn't create it. So this whole notion that like, oh, they're there now. I'm going to be your ally in your fight. It's crazy. And I read this article. I mean, literally I just read it this week or last week. And I don't know how anyone ever uses that term, a white partner or a white accomplice. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's by default had to be what black people do to fight against it because of racism. But it is it's a misnomer, you know, it's a, it's a misconcept. It's, it, it, it kind of, I need to read it again. There's a part two and I haven't read it yet. Cause I want to let it sink in, but I think we all just need to like, stop being so afraid, uh, which is easier said than done. And that's where I think the, the spirituality, the, the, the mindfulness tools and the meditation really help and get out of your bubble, you know, like have conversations with people and, and, be willing to be wrong. And, and, um, I mean, it's hard now because of COVID. So I'm, this is easy for me to all say, I'm not like out with, with anyone other than my living room and my like boyfriend and his kids because of COVID, you know? So it's not like I'm out with the people, whatever people those are, I'm, I'm, I'm hiding away. So it's easy to say it's hard. It's maybe harder to do, but have conversations with people on the street, you know, that you see walking by. And even though you're in your masks, just say, Hey, how are you? And smile and stop to hear how they are doing. Um, recognize, I think there's this problem that white people don't see like black bodies as like flesh and bones that like have consequence, like that have emotion. Like there's this weird thing that black humans are not seen as human and that it's like a dispendable thing. And I'm starting to see that more and more. And I love, um, Resma Menachem says, um, bodies of culture. And he talks about white body supremacy. Like it's like bodies, it's flesh, it's like blood and muscles and real, like it's, it's, it's complex and, and emotional. And, and it's so easy somehow for white people to pretend that it's not. And that I think is what we need to understand. And we shouldn't need like a eight minute and 46 second video to show us that it shouldn't take that, you know, mm-hmm. that's my soapbox. I don't know. Does that help? I, I don't know. I, I think what white people should do is not ask black people what to do. <laughs> and we're paying them for their opinion. Yeah. That's- 
It's like lazy. Just go Google it. Pretend like you're buying a car, like give it that much energy. Pretend like you're purchasing a house or getting a new, you know, uh, iPhone, research it, figure out what you need to do. Don't, don't pull more black energy, energy capital without compensating them for it. And it just take and take and take. Now I can agree a thousand percent with that. Um, I think a lot of people are exhausted. Yeah. You know, and currently in this climate, uh, racial climate, political climate, I think black people are especially fatigued. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's a movie we've seen uh, many times um, and, and it's hard to view another without, uh, without a, a sense of hopelessness from, from the outset. Um, you know, most will say, well, here's, he'll be another video and another one and another one and another one and nothing will really change. And when we think about it, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, you can just be like Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Michael Brown. You can just go on and on. And it's the same movie. And they're literally on video. And it's the same thing. And it's hard not to feel like, what is the next step? And so when I see people, like, you know, when you get angry and you punch a wall, right? Even though it's in your own house. <laughs> uh, I think when people see vandalism and looting, people are going, oh, they're burning stuff down, tearing up sometimes their own neighborhoods. You punch the wall in your own house when you're upset, right? You throw stuff, you throw in your phone, you've thrown, you've broken stuff in your own house. And I don't, I don't think it's very different um, out there. I think it's, I think it's a, a talking point where people go, this isn't the way. And when people say that without providing any other method, right. I just feel like it's just empty, like, so what does that mean? You know, what, what, what haven't people of color tried, you know? And so, um, and so when it comes to, we're talking about allies, right? You know, I remember uh, my mom's friend had a, had a business, uh, like furniture, like upholstery. And it was completely her business. And she hired a white woman to be in the store. She says, I'm going to sell way more this way and be trusted. And the white face the white stamp of approval has always been there. Yeah. You know, I'm going to start a business, da-da-da-da. I'm going to put them in front. That way I can get you in the door, right? Because whiteness, whether we like it or not, right, has, has been the standard. Not excellence, not competence, but whiteness. And so you hear people say things like, you talk white, you dress white, you listen to white music. I grew up listening to Sade, Phil Collins, Tracy Chapman, Wada Motown, Lonis Morissette, Melissa Etheridge, the whole 90s. Like, and I can easily go between these worlds. Yeah. But when I go into like black culture and I play Phil Collins, it's, oh, oh, you're being white. Lincoln Park, oh, you're being white. Fallout Boy, My Chemical Romance, you're being so white. And I'm like, what? I used to be, as, as a teacher, you know, kids would say, Mr. Landis, you dress white. And I'd say, what does that mean? A kid literally told me, says, well, because you tuck your shirts in. A black kid or a white kid? Not that it should matter, but no. I'm just curious. A black kid, you white. And I asked him why he said, because you tuck your shirts in. And I said, oh, okay. Cool story. <laughs> right? And I said, well, while you're at it, next time let's go shopping. And you can show me the white section of the store. And he kind of goes, 
you got me there. Yeah. Right. And so I do think there's a, there's a innate sense of people have been groomed, right. To think I'm white. I'm just better than, and it comes across in the workplace. It comes across in relationships. You know, I've dated outside my race many times. Right. And there are people who feel like I'm part of your struggle. I understand because we're dating or whatever the reason is. And, and, but until they've dated and been out in public together, they never knew. Mm-hmm. It was like, I thought I knew, but now people stare, people say ugly things. I overheard this person say this and da, 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 da. And I didn't realize that they're not even fully, they're not even black. They're just next to a black person going, holy crap, this is, this is your life. Right. And I almost want to make it mandatory that everybody date outside their race. <laughs> You know, because I hear people, they say, I'm so tolerant, we're, so, we're open, da-da-da-da. But I'm like, and you mentioned something like this earlier, right? But, but you never had them at your home or for dinner. There's so many people here who go to work. And then I have a diverse set of friends. Yep, I got this person, that person, that person. And then my measure is always, when people say Atlanta is diverse, because I don't think it is. I think there are a lot of different people living here. But like your classroom, your cafeteria experience, where it's just black people sitting here, white people sitting here. I very much feel that in Atlanta. Because when you ask them, but do you eat with them? Do they come out and hang out with you? And just because that may be you, and you have a couple friends like, like that, and, and it, the majority of what you see, I don't think is that. You know, I can go to Buckhead bars, and I can look at the attire and the dress code, and it'll say, you know, if you're going to wear a t-shirt, it has to have writing on it, because, oh, we don't want a certain type of group no sneakers, no hats, no this, and certain things that we go, we can't say we don't want you. So your typical attire will target that to make sure you can't come in, right? And when you do, even though somebody is in here with the exact same thing we said you couldn't wear, we're going to exclude you. And there's nothing you can do because you have no power. You know? And so I do think, like you said, the have those difficult conversations and to, to put it out there. Uh, like you're saying, you run into the flames, basically, right? It's hard to do. It is hard to do, but it's like, it's uh, at the risk of sounding like woo woo. It's super consciousness expanding. Like I thought I had expanded consciousness with my meditation practice, like crazy, crazy experiences that like I never would have thought would be real. Mm-hmm. But that's nothing compared to the true like connection that can develop between people if you do that, right? If you run into the fire with this, you know? So, and I, I also want to say, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think even people, white people who date black people, like they can use that as an excuse. Like I dated a black guy, therefore I'm not racist. Or I, I know what it's like because this and that and the other, I have a... a so I think that to recognize that you'll never have any sense yeah. to recognize that no matter how much I may have suffered or struggled as a woman in a man's world is nothing compared to nothing compared to what it's like to be black. No matter how much I must have felt like I suffered as a Jewish person in a Christian world, nothing, nothing, not even close. It can give you a fraction of like, it can give you compassion and empathy and an, and an ability to understand what it's like to feel different but it's still the same. And I think that it, it takes 
it takes a willingness to really know someone and a, a willingness to really like decenter yourself. And I think that's what is very hard to do because people are so used to it being about them. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard and, and, and it's, it's, you know, our views, we both live in Atlanta and our views of what this, because I, I've lived in other cities where it's been fully segregated. Like, like there's no sharing of spaces at all. There's no like black people and white people dining together in Chicago. There's one restaurant that I used to go to where, where I would see that in Atlanta. I feel like it's from what you're saying, maybe it's like, we're all like existing in the same space, but not together. Mm -hmm. Like you can go to Lenox square mall and see like, I mean, it's a very, very, I don't think it's a maybe majority white, but it's certainly not like 86% white at that mall. Right. And there, there's, there's Asian people and there's Indian people and there's all sorts of people, but they're with each other. They're not, I'm not like that, you know, so it, you're right. It's not, we're sharing the same spaces more, but it's not like um, a shared experience maybe of those spaces. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Right. You know, yeah. like, are the, are you hanging out at Piedmont Park and are, are they in your flag football group? Um, are they in your book club? And, and I think the same way he says, well, I have an Indian person in my book club, so I can't be racist or I date a black person and whoever, da, 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 I can't be. I think, so we're, I think, I guess two things as we kind of, kind of bring this together is, I guess, where's the finish line, right? Since, we can, we can gain more compassion, uh, a greater understanding of each other, right? Without having to say which struggle is, is, is greater, you know, is, I guess, I think everybody's thinking, where can we get to, to where we feel like everyone's heard and everyone's included in a way that we can all breathe a sigh of relief, like, okay, this is, this is a good stopping point. You know, um, uh, that's, I don't think it's white people. I don't think we have the, where the ability or the, we shouldn't be able to decide that. I don't think, I think that's something that people who are marginalized in the society get to decide. Like, when do you feel like the work is done? Because I don't know, like when, when like crime is still going to happen, we're not going to have a utopian world where there's no crime. But like, how about like crime is just crime instead of it's black crime or white crime or black on black or white, anything like that. And where no one is attacked based on their appearance. No one is killed because, or treated differently because of their race or their gender or their sexual preference or any of those things. But how, do, you know, where the, where the law isn't set up to perpetuate things where, where white people are willing to let go of some of their comfort and some of their position for real. Maybe that, you know, and not just willing to, but actually do. I don't know. I, when there can be a black president without a complete backlash of 
you know, all the things that we've seen that, that have been there all along. I didn't know that either, by the way, for any white person listening, this isn't new. <laughs> it's been there the whole time. It's just coming out of the woodwork a lot more that white people can see it, but it's been there the whole time. But that that doesn't create a whole, that's just like a person who's president who happens to be black rather than it having all these loaded reactions and, and, and hateful reactions. So I don't know. I mean, that's, I just said that white people don't get to decide that. And then I tried to answer the question. So I should shut up and listen to my, listen to my own self and, and be quiet. But I don't know. What do you think? And I asked that without really thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Washington. Uh, see that's not my Washington Redskins, but my shirt. So that's my way of, I don't know quietly demonstrating when I'm outside sometimes. Yeah. Um, I do think, I think you're on to something there about people giving up their positions and, and some of these advantages. And then it's hard, right? Because I don't, I don't know if, if the rules, if the issues are reversed, would it be so easy for anybody? I don't care. Like if you're, you had the power, you made all the rules, and so suddenly somebody says, you know, no, you know, switching it up, everything's equal. You no longer have an advantage. And they're like, like without some sort of resistance, like, hey, wait a minute, you can do this to a point. And I think that's what a lot of people are seeing. Right? This is what we're seeing now, right? You know, like, well, we talked about that before. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll change Aunt Jemima, you know, Uncle Ben. We'll make a basketball court with Black Lives Matters on it. Um, you know, all that's cool, but you can't boycott the entire season. That's going to mess with our money. So yeah. you want to do something else, we can do that. We can build your basketball court with fake fans and give you a jersey and you can put equality and education reform on the back of it, but you can't quit, quit. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that's what we're seeing. It's just a level yeah. of... Make me uncomfortable. You can do whatever it is that you want to do, as long as it makes me feel good about... Right. And I think okay. people on the other side are having conditioned to only ask for so much that even if you put it in their hands, right? It's kind of like being a guest in somebody's house and they're like, eat as much as you want, take as much as you want. And you're like, I really want another slice, but I don't want to seem... <laughs> right. And I think Black people are used to saying, here's what we really need, but I don't, we don't want to appear like this. And, and I think there's some sort of mechanism. I think there's some sort of person, entity pulling the strings where they know that they can offer certain things and only certain people are going to take it, or so many will, that, in, that the outcome will be negligible in terms of real change. Same. You know, it's like we can give you a black president, you need a black vice president because it won't change anything. It looks like change, right. but nothing is going to happen. And we're like, but enough will be fooled to move forward until the next time they got to trick you again. Right? And so what I think uh, needs to happen is I, I don't know how to educate more people other than to have conversations like these and put it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and to not make it a race thing. I mean, God, I, I, I love everybody. And that, I think this was so hard, right? I got friends all over the world, truly, right? 
And to them, I'm just Nick Landers. That's it, you know? And when I, when I worked in Japan, and it's happened to me in Germany as well, people say, I feel so sorry for you, Mr. Landers, that you have to be black in America because we like you so much. And we know when you go back home, you will be received differently. Yeah. And it's always amazing that people outside the country can see that. Whereas the people right here at home either don't know or don't show. Like they just, it's like, we know you have it hard, but admitting what's happening is harder for us than you living it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of that, 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 denial there that is frustrating. I think what I would like to see is a world not where race doesn't matter or race isn't seen. Because you can say that, like you can say that all day, but for white people to say that, I know that's very traumatizing. Like I don't see race. I just, we're, I love everyone. We're all one thing. Like if a white person were to say what you just said, it would be super problematic. And for you to say it, you're just Hmm. saying it. But white people, it comes with this whole like undercurrent and overcurrent and side current and in the middle current of ignoring, you know, Um, like white for white people, it requires work to that statement. I can say it freely as being marginalized person. Right. right? And for white people, it's, it's a, it's a way to like pretend that, that there isn't a different lived experience, but maybe we get to a world where it's like everyone, is super, super, super excited to learn about and engage with people of different cultures. And those people in those cultures are also happy to be in their own culture. Like we're all proud to be who we are. And we're also like just as excited and engaged in spending time with people and and, and socializing with people and working with people who are all the other things too. Like, like, like ferociously wanting to learn more and ferociously wanting to be like, like, cause like right now, like when if black people like want to talk to me, I am like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, like, I feel like I have to earn, I, I am so curious about like how I like truly knowing people and knowing their experience and allowing them to be as honest and not covered up as possible. Like not trying to find a way for my whiteness to not separate. And I think I've gone, you know, I've gone on other trips. I I went to Haiti for a trip and, and, or I'm sorry, I did, but we went to the Dominican Republic and like, I don't speak Spanish. And I just, I didn't like interact with the people in the culture where we went because I felt very intimidated and I felt very like, I don't know how to communicate because I don't speak Spanish. So I just like stuck with the other like white people who were on the trip with me, the medical trip, which is ridiculous. So like, I am, I do the same thing. And this was, this was in uh, 2010, I think. But, but really that curiosity, that genuine curiosity and love and respect for other people, just as they are and wanting to learn about and, 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 and participate with them and what they love without appropriating it. Like maybe that's a sign that we've, maybe that's not how we get there. Maybe that's part of how we get there, but maybe that's a sign that everyone's like, oh, cool. That's what you do. That's who you are. Like, let's do that. And let's not try to make money off of it for me, but let's uh, because I don't, I don't want to see everything get homogenized, but everyone seeing their own value exactly as they are. Like if you are like 
lie to people, stop lying to people. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. Personal stuff is personal stuff, but like culturally, is there a way that it can all be beautiful? Mm-hmm. Cause it's not now we can say it is, but it's, it's in real live reality. It's not. And so that I think would be a beautiful world to live in for everybody. But, um, and maybe, you know, maybe whiteness, there's no, there's no real culture in whiteness so like, other than whiteness, you know? So it's not like that enviable of a, other than the power thing, there's not that much like, Ooh, you're, teach me all about your whiteness. Like, I don't feel like, because it's just the dominant thing. And so I don't think people, we just expect people to know. Yeah. What does it even mean? Like, what's my culture of white? I don't know what makes me special in terms of my whiteness. But I know people who aren't white and, 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 you know, like maybe my Jewish background makes me more interesting, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I hope that I'm interesting as a human being, but I just don't know that. uh... Anyway, I'm I'm rambling on now, but I just think it's, I think we need to shift our perspective and I think we need to like truly value humanity, however it looks. Yeah. Okay. So let's close on this though. Cause I like to end it this way. I've been doing it like this lately. Uh, the question I'm going to ask is, who are you? Mm. Right. And I think today it may be its most apt, you know, uh, so you can answer it any way you like. Um, but that's it. Just who are you? Who am I? I am a human being that is trying my best to expand my consciousness and do the inner work that it takes to like, uh, I'm, I'm relentless at doing the internal work to get rid of the things in myself that I don't think are productive or helpful for my, for my own happiness and for the world. So that's like a big picture. Am I succeeding at that? But I feel like that is, with meditation and with tapping, which we didn't really talk about. And with anti-racism, it's sort of like, how can I like really dig in to become a version of myself that I can be really proud of? Um, those aren't any of my labels. I'm a white woman, previously doctor, now meditation teacher, et cetera. That, those are the labels, but who I am in my core is someone who wants to be better and it wants to help other people do the same. That sounds like really lofty and maybe that's BS, but maybe that's how I would like to be at least. No, I think that's a a perfect answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope we can get into more of like the practical side uh, in the future. And I know we mentioned, uh, I know I mentioned a panel Mm -hmm. uh, come up here in the future and and that's still in, in, uh, in the works but it would be exciting to have you be a part of that as well. Um, but yeah, definitely the tapping and, and more into the meditative meditation side. Because um, I do think for some after hearing this, I think they will want to try it. 
you know, at least to try something. I think everybody's hungry right now for some sort of solution on an individual level, not just, you know, on a societal level, but like, what can I do? I need a project to work on. And, you know, because I think we're all exhausted. We're, we're all pretty tired um, and frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. You say, you say the word and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, down to participate for sure. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for, Thanks for wanting to hear what I have to say. I, I'm, <laughs> I love, I, I've been having so much fun inter- interviewing other people and it's just really nice to like, I don't know, just kind of fun having a conversation about it and, and getting into some of that earlier stuff that I um, don't often get to verbalize. <laughs>